everyone, and welcome to The Geek Rant, episode 350, Milestones, Monuments, and Merriment, recorded February 24th, 2019, and brought to you by Element OP Productions, elementopie.com. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to Drive Time Radio for Geeks. I am your host, Mark, sometimes known as the Sultan of the Soapbox Cockerel, and joining me this week, as always, are your two stalwart co-hosts, Seth, the Gooey Kid Anderson, and Miles, the Oxygenaire Wakeham. Hello, gentlemen. Hey, Mark, and welcome back, Opiates. I'm so glad to be here again. And I still hate Max, although maybe a little less now. And no, no, you're not a lot. You got to hate him more. This, well, this is one of those ever increasing hatred moments. Yeah, point taken. So I, I just I had a revelation today. I wasn't wasn't even thinking about talking this, but at lunch, talking with my Georgia friends, you know, in Georgia. Um, you must have a Chick-fil-A and wash it down with Coca-Cola um, because that this is the mecca, all these things. And I, and I made the, uh, had the epiphany today. Chick-fil-A is the Mac of chicken. It's a bland piece of dry chicken on bread with no seasoning, but it's cost more and it's a, it's a, it's a superb experience. And therefore people think it is the perfect chicken. Okay, but you might have just consigned yourself to roast in hell for all eternity for blaspheming. <laughs> I know, it, it is the Jesus chicken. Yes. <laughs> you know, and what, he is blessed, let no one curse or something like that. The Mac of chicken. You've blown yeah, my mind, it sir. Is. No. And, and like Bojangles is the android of chicken. You know, it's <laughs> it's cheap, greasy, but it's good. And, and, um, and I guess you know uh, Kentucky Fried Chicken is is the Linux. Uh, you know, no, it's Windows definitely. Win- okay. It's it yeah. basic, you know, middle of the road. <laughs> um, and then you know, it was funny because I, I threw that bomb out there, uh, and I'm listening to my Georgia friends like come to the defense of Chick Fil A as if <laughs> as if it's some requirement for your georgia citizenship that you do that and they talk about the principles and the fact that they're closed on sunday and it's like and so that's reason enough to eat bland chicken on dry toast and they were like well yeah okay that sounds like something a mac user would say (laughs) they'd have have avocado on that toast mark (laughs) yeah okay so Uh, well i don't know because they you know Chick-fil-A, here's the thing. Chick-fil-A will kill you with kindness. Mac expects you to die a slow death of smugness. So there is the big differentiation. <laughs> now, if you've ever been to so, a Mac store, they are super polite there. Um, there is absolutely smugness in the air. I mean, you need a respirator to to survive the smugness, but they're super polite about it. It's just an underhanded polite. I just, I, I can't make it to the door of the Mac store because the smugness, it's like, you know, you I'm trying, it's like that, you remember that one guy on the Weather Channel where he's like faking, bracing into the wind, right, right. except, you know, it's just like, I'm trying to get there. And so it's hard, but no, Chick-fil-A, they, they welcome you in. Please come eat our chicken. And the Mac's like, you can't afford this stuff. Get out. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, that that's the difference. There is a difference. Jinda says he's a Mac user. Do you also like Chick-fil-A, Jinda? But you're from New York. Uh, Chick-fil-A hasn't really broken in there yet. They have real food in New York, like pizza and hot dogs and stuff and great sandwiches. Yeah, it's all about the deli there. Yeah. Rem- remember this conversation when we get to the end and Seth's show close and spectacular. <laughs> oh, That's all I've got to did say. Did we unintentionally foreshadow? Nice. No, it's a, man, it, you know, this is one of the, I can't remember. The, yes, good epic foreshadowing. <laughs> All right. I just wanted to give a quick, um, uh, oh, he says he's not a Mac user. He runs Linux. Okay. I misunderstood. Oh, hallelujah, uh, yeah, brother. Good. Good. I, I like you again. Um, it's, it's like <laughs> we the, almost banned what, you from the show. <laughs> the dogs in the movie up. I like you temporarily. Yeah. You know, that's, um, so, uh, a quick movie review. Um, not surprising. The movie rampage isn't a good movie. <laughs> So there's my review. It's every bit as bad as you think it's going to be. It's a it's a video game. It's a movie based on a mediocre video game starring Dwayne The Rock Johnson. You know it's going to be bad going in. In fact, uh, we when we sat down as a family to watch this, it was we all were just sort of in agreement. 
this is going to suck, right? We all agree. Yeah, yeah, okay. But it's going to be probably bad in the best way. Um, and it, and absolutely, it was cheesy and ridiculous and insulting to your intelligence, but in the best way. So Rampage is really bad, but worth it. That's my review. And uh, no disagreements there. It does. It it is what it is. And Dwayne the Rock Johnson is your. You know, bubblegum for the brain, action, spectacular star. So we might not can smell what The Rock is cooking anymore, but we can dang sure see what he's cheesifying. <laughs> so we're not going to see a nomination at tonight's Oscars for this. No, movie. no, yeah, we are. We are sacrificing our Oscar viewing time to bring you this podcast. So uh, <laughs> you know, I, I, I thank you for for pointing that out. Uh, our our struggle should be noted. <laughs> um and uh seth uh, this looks like something anime so yeah this is um a, a oh golly i can't even remember her name anymore that's how awesome the movie is alita battle angel is the live action adaptation of alita battle angel uh anime and manga and so not the best movie by any stretch of the imagination visually it is very very good uh you know, so if you think Ghost in the Shell is like this bad movie, which we all kind of agree it is, this is like halfway between Ghost in the Shell and Avatar. So solid entry. I had watched, uh, to get ready for it, I had watched the um, first part of the anime series, and basically they stuck very close. They incorporated some stuff from the later volumes just to kind of give the runtime. One of the cool things about Japanese anime is they just throw you in the middle of the story a lot of times, and you don't necessarily know everything that got them there. You learn some of it in flashbacks, and a lot of the pushback on the movie, oh, well, you know, they never explained, and I mean, I'd like, I I thought of half a dozen ways where you could have got to that opening that didn't require any suspension of disbelief within the within the realm that they created. So not a great movie, not a bad movie. I think it's a good movie to watch. I enjoyed it. Um, but again, you know, I'm an anime manga lover. So Alita Battle Angel looks really good. Um, it One of the cool things is the fight scenes are so well done. Uh, choreography wise that you know they don't have to do the jerky camera to you know make i mean it just it looks like it looks like you know brutal dancing it's so well done anyway alita battle angel uh, you know it's not it's not the citizen kane of movies but it's okay. it's good is this animated or live action live action adaptation okay, okay. uh because i th i just assumed animated until you said shaky camera um, yeah all right by the way, just a nod to the first um, Pacific Rim movie. One of the best battle action sequences all the way through um, the, of any movie I've ever seen. And not, not not at any point did you get confused about who was hitting who. There was none of that getting lost in the motion. At every point, the action was clear and cogent, and it was just good, exciting battle um, animation. In terms of CGI battle animation, that's probably the best I've ever seen. Just thought I'd throw that out there. Yeah, it was really good. So, yeah, I mean, it is everything Transformers was not. Yep, no, no disagreement there. Uh, and then and Seth, uh, uh, Miles, uh, in sticking with the financial February thing, uh, made us discovery this week. Shocking! Inquiring minds want to know. I did. I got to bring you back from uh, movies and escapism to the boring reality of life. But <clears throat> with it, I discovered some really shocking information. But Here's the backstory. Um, I'm interested in buying some gold as an investment. And I bought a little bit last year and it's done very well for us. And so I thought we'd buy some more. So there's a few people who I kind of follow on the YouTubes um, and podcasts and so on who are big in the, I guess, alternative investing space. And one of them is a guy by the name of Doug Casey. I don't know if you've heard of this guy. He's a bit, he's a bit wacko. Um, but he is one of these billionaire type investors who did really, really well back in the 70s and the 80s investing in what he called crisis investing. So I went on YouTube anyway to find out what's his position on, you know, gold. Is it going to go up? Going to go down? I don't know. And um, 
you know, you search and, of course, it comes up all these videos and one of them was this guy being interviewed in 1981 on the Phil Donahue show. Now, probably most of our audience would be way too old to remember who Phil Donahue was, but back in the 80s he used to be like the, the male Oprah oh, yeah. of daytime TV, right? It was really a hot property. And if you were interviewed on his show, you know, you'd made it. Well, um, I watched this 1981 episode of the Phil Donahue show interviewing Doug Casey and man, it was weird because I looked, you know, you, you come face to face sometimes with history and you remember I was 18 years old in 1981 when this was filmed. And what happened was that there were all these predictions that were made by Doug Casey on this TV show. And my God, I, I, I'd say 90% of them came true. Now, the timing was a bit off, but I was just reading through the YouTube comments afterwards, and this guy had taken the time to post these statistics, these financial statistics of what things cost and what things were, you know, what was life like in 1981, and then draw a direct parallel to what it looked like in 2018 or whenever this video went, went live. I just wanted to share a few of these numbers because they're going to blow your mind. Um so check this out. All right. So in 1981, world population was 4 billion people. So today we're at 7.3 billion people. So we're almost double world population Wow! since I was 18, right? Okay. So here's another one. Average male life expectancy in 1980, 73.6 years. This is US numbers. Today, average male life expectancy, 76.1 years. In that period of time, that is what, uh, how many years are we talking about? 30, 30 years, something like that. We've only increased life expectancy by three years. And the main reason why it's down is because of the opioid crisis. And, you know, the number of the, it's the leading cause of, of death in under 50-year-olds. It's surpassed heart disease and car accidents and cancer. It's overdoses. So that's kind of drawing down the numbers there. But here's some other it's, information. It's 38 years, by the way, almost 40 years. Thank you. There we go. All right. So in 1980, healthcare costs per person in the U.S., so per capita annual healthcare costs in 1980, $1,100. In nineteen in two thousand and eighteen, ten thousand seven hundred and thirty nine dollars. So healthcare costs went up ten times, and life expectancy went up three years. So not a good return on investment there. So uh, let me give you a couple more, and then I'll I'll stop with the stats. Um, average U.S. salary in nineteen eighty, thirty thousand dollars. Average U.S. salary in two thousand and eighteen. $50,000 didn't go up much in 38 years. Average U.S. home price in 1980, $79,000. Average U.S. home price in 2018, $400,000. So it went up about five times. Here's something, this, this one blew my mind. The Dow Jones Industrial Average in 1980, 964. And as of the end of last year, we were, or as of right now, we're over 25,000. <laughs> so in summary, if I was to read these stats, we've doubled our population. We haven't increased our life expectancy, really. Our healthcare went up 10 times. The stock market went up 25 times. Salary went up 1.6 times and home value went up five times. So you got, read from that what you will as to where you invest, what you do with your life, your time. These, to me, are shocking numbers. I don't know. What do you guys think? So don't invest in your own health. That's the moral <laughs> of that story. Pretty much. Yeah. Yeah, but buy into the stock market. <laughs> yeah. Well, interestingly, because if you're looking at gold, gold is a bet against the stock market. You're expecting the economy to crash if you're looking at gold. That's the only reason to buy gold. It's to the term you use, crisis investing. I think things are going to head to the toilet quickly. Let me buy gold. Um, so you just, yeah. you counteract, counteracted yourself, invest in the stock market, but you're not investing in the stock market. Yeah, correct. 
You know, uh, I, one of the podcasts I listen to, well, Formula Podcast, um, free endorsement there. I think it's pretty cool. But um, he mentions that, you know, back in the Roman days, an ounce of gold would buy you a nice toga and a pair of sandals. And today, uh, an ounce of gold will buy you a nice suit. So uh, it is <laughs> it it is a hedge against inflation. So it, it isn't going to make you rich, but it will protect your wealth. So, and that's kind of, that, that's why you get into gold. So. Right on. My own personal um, measure of economy is loaves of bread versus hourly wage. How many, how much money do you make per day? How many loaves of bread can you buy with that? And that's been remarkably consistent throughout history. It's like the price of gold. You know, when you get down to the real things, the numbers are just abstract numbers. Right, inflation uh, wages go up, but so do prices. Um, it's been remarkably consistent that a day's wage will buy you uh, a day's food. That that you know, with with uh, within you know ten to fifteen percent, that has been true for as, as far back as I've been able to research. Yeah, I tried to bring food costs into these statistics to give myself as some sort of an like a cost of living type number, but it's hard to do that because of agronomics. You know, you've I, I was using a cost of a quart of milk as a yeah. basis, and it's not that different. I mean, it's it's up a little bit, but it's not that different. But then you look at the technology they use to milk cows today, then you know that's why. Yeah, right. yeah, it, we always find a way to make those things stable. Um, the life life just goes on. Yeah, you can buy a suit or you can buy, you know, a day's food. That's interesting. All right. Uh, so uh, this topic of this week's financial February, uh, the last in, in the month, we, we missed the first uh, week in February. Uh, uh, as the title suggests, Milestones, Monuments, and Merrymaking. Um, oftentimes when you're talking about financial stuff, you're talking about long term. Uh, what, what did we just do, right? We just went back 38 years. Seth went back 2,038 years. Um, I went back, you know, several hundred years, or, or, or you know, uh, uh, five to six hundred at least. Um, when you talk about numbers, financial numbers, it's almost always long term, right? I'm going to get out from under uh, $140,000 worth of student debt. I'm going to pay off my $250,000 home. I'm going to amass a million dollars for retirement. Um, and these things take 20, 30, 40 years. Uh, and they're, they're mind-bogglingly big numbers. And what I've found in my own life is that anytime you're trying to think long-term like that, the human brain just sort of fuzzes out. Um, it's too abstract to get a handle on. Um, and, and, and you could uh, p- apply these principles to not just finances, but, but uh, you know, uh, dieting, uh, exercising, um, studying, anything like that. When you look at the mountain you have to climb, you just look at it and say, I can't do that. And you walk away from the mountain. If you look at it as, you know, today, our base camp is going to be a thousand feet up. That, that's a, that seems like an approachable goal. That is just a benchmark of the human mind across all cultures. We're all like that. We can't look at big things. But when it comes to uh, finances, we only talk about the big things. We only talk about the huge goals. And it's so easy to get lost in that. Um, and none of the things that I'm going to say today is new. I've, I have stolen liberally from lots of other uh, financial teachers. Uh, and, but the, one of the things that I found that works for me in, in everything, not just in finances, is to break things down into uh, small things and then set up milestones. So the, the milestones are the things, those are the small goals, right? And then uh, monuments the next thing those are the big things and then merrymaking you gotta have some fun along the way like for example uh taking it away from money and my personal goal to be two third uh, one third the man i used to be right I, at one point i tipped the scales in excess of 500 pounds i don't know how much in excess of 500 pounds because my scale stopped at 500 pounds but i do know that i lost weight for several months before i could actually see how much weight i had lost so my uh, my assumption is 510 to 520 around there was was my heaviest weight. I don't know how much above 500, but some, something around 500. And my goal is to be around 200. That's not a realistic goal at my age and size. 200 is, is not really realistic, but 225, 230, somewhere around there. But 
the ma- the thing is, I'm gonna I'm looking to lose 300 pounds, and when you look at that number and you say I need to lose 300 pounds, you, you just well I'll go have a donut instead. It's just uh, it's an insurmountable sort of thing, um, and I've found with experimentation of my own health and the and my own way of eating that I can't sustain, you know, X carbs, X calories, macros, whatever you can. I I simply am unable to sustain that without an end in sight. So I have to plan in cheat days, right? Every diet talks about cheat days. It's a it's a thing that people need, right? And um, you know, you you once a week, once every other week, once a month, whatever it is, your birthday, Christmas, don't even try to count calories on Thanksgiving Day. It's ridiculous. It's insane. It's self defeating to try to do it. Well, the same thing counts uh, is true in your your financial life. You can't just be as Dave Ramsey says, beans and rice, scorched earth all the time. And even he talks about the fact that you have to take all your money and divide it into three categories: give some, spend some, and save some. Right? And and so the spending some is to have some fun in there. So have a financial cheat day. Do it responsibly. Right. If you're going to have a cheat day in your diet, you can't consume seven thousand calories on that day and blow the whole week's worth of work. But you can go have an ice cream cone, right? And financially, it's the same thing. You can go out to a movie um, once in a while. And and Seth and I were talking before the show started. When I take my family five to a movie, we start at about sixty five dollars. Just that's the base. Get in the door for five movie tickets. Um, if we have popcorn and drinks, we're up over $100. If we go to uh, uh, a, a dine-in theater, which I like, we're now looking at anywhere from $180 to $200. That's not something we can do on a regular basis, but it is something that we can plan to do, and we can build into the budget, and we can budget an outing like that. And so even though we're trying to you know, meet financial goals, one of those goals needs to be having some fun once in a while. So that's, those are things that I call uh, merrymaking. You've got to build those in, but responsibly. What do you guys think about that so far? Let you go first, Miles. I like the idea. I, I think you've got to do it. Um, you've got to – if you can build habit, around the stuff that's boring and you don't have to think about it and it just becomes normal everyday routine, then the stuff that's not routine has kind of exceptional value to you and you don't need as much of it. Like for me, I have a, you know, my passion is motorsport. So I will go to two or three races every year and yeah, it's not cheap. I mean, I got to fly to a place that, you know, sometimes tickets are expensive uh, I got to stay in a hotel room. I got to rent a car, and the whole bit. And maybe that experience is a thousand bucks. I mean, maybe it's less. I don't know. But um, I will do that because I need to know that I'm still human. <laughs> I'm in here in this computer, robotic, artificial world, working, 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 keeping everybody else happy except myself. And you can do that for so long that at some point you're going to go, hey, what about me? And so that's kind of my advice. I mean, what do you do, Seth? Well, I mean, I try to budget, you know, like I would I would go see a movie every day just because I enjoy the theater. But I know like, no, I'm not going to do that. And usually I pick the cheaper movie theaters, but occasionally it's, it's studio movie grill and I'm not just going to like go in and see the movie. I'm going to like, you know, eat a meal while I'm there. So yeah, you, you reward yourself, you know, a little bit as long, you know, I look at it. If you're going up a mountain, you're not going straight up. You're going up this peak. Then you come down a little valley so you can go up higher. If you're coming down off the mountain of debt, you're going down and then you take this little peak. So you get up so you can go down further. So that's the way I look at it. A one-time thing you know, is a one-time thing. So, and those kind of things happen and you have to budget as long as the overall direction is in the, is in your same way. You, you pick up so much more stuff, you know, you splurge and then that gives you an experience and then you might, Oh, you know, Hey, I, I haven't been doing anything at all for a while. So I've never done whatever. I'm going to go try that. And then, you know, maybe you end up 
totally changing your life or whatever, but as long as your overall direction is one way, you take those little side detours and that, that makes the journey worthwhile. So what I'm calling milestones, if you're a Dave Ramsey, I like, he calls those baby steps, right? You have your seven steps that you go through, but one of his baby steps is, you know, free of all consumer debt. That's not a baby step. That's a three to four year process. He says the average is two. Um, so, uh, that's a big deal. You've got to have baby steps within those baby steps, the milestones, uh, and you celebrate those milestones. You look forward to them. You 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 cross them off the 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 wall, whatever. You uh, like you know, I paid off this credit card. That's a milestone, or I have a net worth of X. So if you're looking at savings, right? So I'm going to retire, and I want to have roughly a hundred thousand dollars income uh, when I retire. That's my my goal. Well, to do that. Uh, and to count on a market of of five to six percent return, I need to have about two million dollars in the bank at the time I retire. That seems like a ton of money. It is a ton of money. Uh, but with you know, uh, if if I'm going to retire at say fifty, and Miles, you just said the average life expectancy is seventy six, so that's twenty six years I've got to live. A hundred thousand dollars twenty six years from from now may not be enough, right? But I'm also not going to have a lot of expenses, so. The rough numbers are, I need about $2 million in the bank. Some years I'll get more returns, some years I'll get less. Well, a milestone for that might be hitting the $500,000 mark. Um, that seems so huge, but that's why, I mean, milestones are supposed to be huge things. They're not something you do every day. That's that's not a milestone. That's a footstone. Uh, it's when you've walked a mile, that's when you say, I'm going to drop a stone here and I'm going to remember this moment. So you pick big things, but attainable things. Um, you know, if you're looking at uh, one of the examples I hear, have here is 25% of household income to savings. If you're looking at budget, if you're looking at designing your budget, and you can say, I'm going to get to that half a million or $2 million mark, one way I've got to do that is stop spending so much money. So I've got to start curtailing things. Um, cutting debt payments is a good way to do that. Uh, so you might say, I want 25% of my money off the top to go into savings. That's a milestone. Um, and, and if you're uh, what uh, Clark Howard here in the Atlanta market calls a, a max saver, you're living on 50% of your income and 50% is going into savings. Um, but you can't just do that today. Most people can't just say, t- starting tomorrow, I'm t- t- sending half my paycheck to savings and I'm living on the other half. You've got to get there. You've got to work your way to that. Those are milestone moments. Build those. Plan those. Talk if, you, if you're a family, right? If you're a single person, it's easy. But if you're a family, if there's other people involved, you have to talk about it. You've got to get buy-in. Everybody has to agree this is a milestone. And then aim for those and then celebrate when you cross them off. Uh, and the next step, the bigger milestone, these are monuments. Um, I, I go back to my Judeo-Christian roots often. Uh, in, uh, in the Old Testament, when a, great, a, a big thing happened, when the Israelites were brought through a tough time or when, uh, when Jacob uh, uh, you know, first crossed the Jordan, he built the, the, the biblical term is an Ebenezer. He built an Ebenezer, built a, a, a stack of stones. Um, and this goes across lots of different cultures, not just Jewish culture. But um, you can go back and, or you might dig a well. That was another Ebenezer that people would do. Uh, this is a thing. This represents this huge thing that happened to me. We need these monuments in our lives. We need to build up Ebenezers from time to time. We need to say something like, I just paid off my student loan debt. Look at that. Circle it. Celebrate it. Look back later uh, at it, on it. When, when things seem insurmountable, you can say, this is a thing. This thing took me eight years to do. It shows that I can do a thing that takes eight years to do. Build those monuments. Shine them up. Keep them polished. Take tours of them on a regular basis because those successes in your life will fuel you in times when you, when you can't see a route to success. When things are dark, you need to be able to look back at your own monuments. And, and that's not a thing in our American Western culture. We don't do that. We should, not just with money, but with everything. We should take moments and we should build monuments and we should be able to look back on the life uh, in our life and say, this was a really big thing. This thing nearly killed me, but it didn't kill me. And now when I think something is going to kill me, I can look back and say, here's a thing that I survived. Look at this monument. You guys have any examples of monuments in your own lives? 
I remember when I paid off my student loan debt. Oh my gosh, it was such a huge deal. You know, I was watching it and tracking it. And then when it got down lower and lower and lower, I was like, okay, this is month. And you know, and if you look at the numbers, my student loan debt is the worst debt to pay off first because it's the lowest interest rate and it's a direct write-off on your income on your taxes. But for me, it got to the point to where my student loan was the smallest debt I have. And in the snowball method, it's like, I need a win. And when it got down to it, it meant, hey, my credit card debt this month, it's only going to fall a few bucks because I'm getting that student loan debt. And then it was just like, there was one less debt. And it was like, you know, it doesn't matter what, ha- you know, you get your credit card paid off, you can do something you, but it's like, no, that's dude, that's a loan and it's over and it's gone. And I was like, oh my gosh, you know, you just like, hey, if I paid that off and I remember, you know, I remember when I had no job and it was staring me in the face and all that. And it was like, I just made my last payment. And, you know, and that's been years and years ago. And I just like, it was amazing. I did that, you know, and, and it's not a financial thing, but I remember when I finished college and actually graduated, you know, I was on the decade plan off and on, but it was just like, Hey, I finished something. I got a degree, you know, and that says something about me, you know, when you want to give up, it's like, well, wait a minute, I finished that. I can do this. And so, you know, they're very important and they can provide you a source of strength, you know? Yeah. That college diploma hanging on the wall is a monument. Um, and that's the thing. It says I can play the game for four years or more, and I can I can do what's required of me, even even when I disagree with it. That's a monument, and that's a thing. I I, I don't even know where mine is. I, I couldn't tell you where mine is. I should find it and I should hang it up because that's a monument. That's a thing. Miles, what about you? Well, I'm a little more liquid than that. Um, yeah, I I do have monuments, I guess. Um, but but. Uh, Mine are a little juxtaposed because the way I the way I look at things is kind of unusual. Um, I I take you know that seventy six average years of life expectancy is a really important number when you're actually looking at how to strategize your life because the way I the way I do it is I break life up into four quarters. The first quarter, the first let, let's say each quarter is eighteen or twenty years on based on average life expectancy. So the first 20 years is your nurturing phase when you're being raised by parents, you're not, your expectations are low, your goal is to learn to walk, to learn to talk, learn to read, learn to write, and learn to socialize and eventually come out the other end as a, quote, adult, right? That, you can't be expected to earn money and save money in that period of time. Some people do. I, I kind of did. But most people, they don't. You know, their job is to go to school. Um, the second quarter of your life is what I would call the building quarter, the building phase. You're building a life for yourself. You're building a, a, a career. You're building a family. You're building an education. You're building a house. You're building a life. You're building a, a routine. And that will take you until maybe the mid-40s, somewhere like that. And it's really hard when all of your expectations and your income has to be diverted into building something because you've got to build something. Otherwise, were you going to be homeless? No. Homeless with a big bank account isn't a way to live life, people. I mean, it's not. You need to build something. So you build a family, you build all this sort of stuff. That third quarter is a consolidation and optimization period. You hope by about the age of 45 or 50 that you kind of learned something and you kind of have life experiences and you'll say to yourself, geez, I'll never do that again. Or I know how to do this better and faster and smarter because I was sick and tired of doing it the wrong way when I was 30. You've got that in your, in your background. And so at that point in time, this represents the peak income earning years of your life. And the goal is grab and hold, grab and hold, just amass wealth like crazy. Because that final quarter where you're in retirement and you're, you know, eating jello and sitting watching TV all day or you're on the golf course or you're doing whatever you do in retirement, you know the end is nigh. You know that, you know, you're coming to the end of the 76 average years. Somewhere down there, you're going to hit the finishing line and you just hope that you left the world a better place for having done it. And at that point in time, you're back to what you were when you were a kid. You're not expected to earn money. You're not expected to work. You're expected to live off what you did in the other quarters of your life. 
And if you apply that methodology, then all of a sudden saving has to be put in context with where are you on those in that quartile process? Because you can't save when you're a kid. I mean, maybe you can if you if you're really good, and you certainly not expect to save when you're in your waning period in your final quarter. So if you put all of your effort into saving in your second quarter, the the advantage is the world and physics and compound reality and all this sort of stuff plays in your favor and you make a lot of money. But if you if you went into the building phase with very little and you sold your future out, your mortgages, your car payments, your student loans, all those things that you're selling your future to pay for, when you get to the end of that second quarter and you're going to go into that third quarter, you might not have the ability to start amassing savings and to get those milestones. That's the scary part. That's why, to me, as a father of a 21-year-old daughter, my goal is to make sure that as she goes into the second quartile of her life, she doesn't sell her future out way too early for the nice car and the and, you know Louis Vuitton bag. And that is the American way. The American way is to squander your, your second quarter. Yeah. But, you know, if you talk to the FI people, the people in the financial independence movement, they will tell you save 75% of your money in your second quarter because you're living like you were in your first. And that's very, very smart. But it's very rare that people can achieve it. Yeah. So if I if you add up all the money I've made, I'm, I'm 46. I started working at 18. Um, so in all of those years, almost 30 years of working – um, I have made over a million. I, I, I haven't done the math on it, but a million is, is, is probably not unreasonable. Um, I have spent a million. You know, it's all gone. I, my savings is, is uh, very little um, because I, you know, it was in that building phase. I like that, that way of looking at it. There's a, an author, I can't remember, John MacArthur, is it maybe? He, he refers to the three stages of man uh, as uh, a, uh, a warrior, a king, and a sage. Uh, and of course, you're not a man when you're a child, so that doesn't count. But it's it's that so, same sort of thing. You first, you're a warrior. You're out there conquering territory. You're wooing and you're killing and you're building. And then you're a king. You're you're presiding over all that you have conquered. And then you're a sage, um, passing on the wisdom and uh, preparing somebody else to run your kingdom. Same sort of model as as what you just described. Uh, but if you're not, uh, you know. If you come out of that warrior phase or of that second quartile, to use your uh, analogy, and you don't have anything yet, um, it makes that third quarter, the, the king quarter, much more difficult uh, because you're um, you, you're having to catch up. And that's where I am. I'm having to catch up. And in fact, most people are like that. I'm not unusual in that. Most no. people hit 50 and realize, uh-oh, I'm in real trouble. Um, I would say, though, there's absolutely no reason to beat yourself up if you went through the building quarter of your life and you spent all of your time and energy and your money and your and your time and earning capacity to build. Because if you've walked away with a house and a car and a family and you've got something to show for that building phase, you've, you're a success right. in my book. You don't have to have oodles of money in the bank and all that other stuff. Don't forget all that other stuff was what you were expected to do in the second quarter. The most important thing, which you guys are so good at, at talking about, is that in building that second quarter of your life, you didn't sell your, your future out. You didn't take on more debt and more future burden so that in the third quarter, the big winning, big income earning quarter, you're not sitting there giving all the money you make to the bank. Right. You know, what? Uh, often people look at uh, weddings as, as a milestone. A wedding is a monument when you're a parent. My, I have three daughters. I'm probably going to have three weddings in my near future. Those are monuments. Look what I did. I built a person, and that person is now going to go off and build their own life. That's a monument. <laughs> And, uh, and it's important to look at those as that's part of your building phase. All the things I don't have now, I could, be, I could be so rich if I chose not to have kids, but I'm spending my money on my kids. 
You know, and again, that's that's a very American way to do things. We don't have multi generational households. I don't have the benefit of multi generations of of a family of a household of of a building uh, to raise up in. We we ha- we start over every time. And when my kids are you know twenty, twenty one, twenty three, whatever it is, when they get married, they're going to start over again. Um, and that's just the way we do things in the West. Um, but it's important to look at those things as those are monuments. Those are things that you, you did a thing. And the thing you did was you made a whole person and, and anybody can, um, make a baby, but to produce a, a, a quality human, that's a thing to be celebrated. Anything yeah. else? Yeah. <laughs> All right. Uh, and then the last thing on my list, I've already talked about it is the merriment. Enjoy the life along the way. Um, that doesn't have to be expensive. It's gotta be planned. So the things I put down here are a paid for vacation. If you go on vacation and have to pay for it later, that's that's dumb. You know, pay for it first, then go. Right, and then uh, we have the list of things we can finally afford. Right, so um, my wife and I, the topic of discussion in our house on on a regular basis right now is new furniture because we have three daughters and they've destroyed everything we own. And you can't have nice things and have kids. So at some point, we're going to go out and and we're going to replace all the the destroyed carpets and ruined floors and broken couches and we're going to get new stuff that'll be both a monument and a merriment look we can finally do this sort of stuff again but it's got to be paid for i'm not going to go slap down a credit card and say fill her up that's 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 the the one message i wanted to say is when you're i I want you to have fun with your money but have fun and fun with the money you have not the money that you hope to earn later you know, if you're if you're buying a steak dinner on a credit card, you may be paying for that steak for three and a half years at eighteen percent interest. You know, that's that's a very expensive steak. So enjoy things, but do so responsibly. Any thoughts on that? And you know, and that's the that's the thing. All of what we're saying, you know, this isn't some super secret, you know, you've been initiated into the club. This is this is the uncommon sense. If it were common, more people would have it kind of stuff. And look where we could be if we did 5% YOLO and 95% tomorrow. We're 99% YOLO and 1%. I don't even know what the other percent was. And if we reverse that, you know, um, I found this website and it's put out by the federal government of all people. And it shows the effect of compounding interest and how, if you start when you're 20 with $200, it only takes less than the historical average return of the stock market to have over a million dollars when you retire. And that's less than the average return of the stock market. And, only and that's not adding to that $200, right? That's no, just no, $200. That's $200 a month. of savings a month starting at age 20, and you have well over a million dollars when you retire at something below the average historical return of the stock market. And, you know, versus, oh, I'm going to go to Europe today, and oh, I want that new car, and oh, the iPhone 9, the iPhone 10, the iPhone stupid, the whatever, and you get all this crap. And you have nothing to show for it. And then you have nothing that you get to be generous with later on because your generosity was given to the banks and was giving to the computer companies and not not given to the people that, you know, we say we love and care about. But yet, you know, so and and like I say, this isn't rocket science. It isn't some hidden knowledge. It's forgotten knowledge because we know better than, you know, the people of the past. I think the important thing also is to consider the concept of financial sustainability as opposed to financial retirement or independence or anything like that. If you can build things that make money without you being there, you know, passive income, this has always been my, this is my mantra, this is what I do. I can go on a vacation for a month to Paris or Rome or whatever, and when I come back, even though it might have cost me 10,000 bucks, well, it doesn't, you know, I do the travel hacking, but whatever, <laughs> even, though, even though it might have cost me a, a ton of money, when I come back, I am richer than when I left. And I didn't do squat to be richer. Now, if you've got that strategy in place, 
you can live until you until you have dying breath and you'll never worry about being a burden on a pension or a social security or anything to anybody else because when you don't want to work, you're still earning money. That's the key. Sustainability is the key. Not and and the thing is when you give all of that money to a third party, you know, you give it to Wall Street, you give it to your stockbroker, you give it to your financial advisor. That level of trust I ha- I would have a hard time with that. I because I'm, you know, I just don't think that when the, you know, in an SHTF situation, would that guy really have my interests at heart or his own? And at the end of the day, I'm I might be a control freak with this sort of thing. I can't give it up to Wall Street even though it might have these massive returns. I need to be able to put it in the ground and feed it myself. That's just me. But it's all about sustainability. It's about having money make you money so you don't have to work, so you can grow old gracefully and still have that trip to Rome and that trip to Paris. As long as that's part of the overall process. You know, and it, it has to start early. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, and to sum up what Dave Ramsey would say on that point, you know, I think it was him work, you know, are you going to work hard for your money or are you going to have your money work hard for you? So, yeah. So Richard Kiyosaki for sure would say that, you know, rich dad, poor dad, is it Richard? Right. Did I get it right? Robert, Robert Robert Kiyosaki. That's it. Um, and as soon as I said it, it didn't seem right. Um, he's all about, you know, passive income and, uh, you know, that's the sort of the smart way to make money. So they say, I just hadn't figured out how to do it yet. Someday. Well, f- fun fun fact about Robert Kiyosaki. I have to share this story because it's kind of weird. I went to CES this year, right, back in January, and I, I'm getting on the flight. It was a Southwest flight. But Robert Kiyosaki lives in Phoenix, by the way. So I get on the flight, and I'm wondering – I get one of those early bird, you know, things because my credit card gives it to me for free. So I'm, like, getting on the first group. And I'm wandering down with my bag and who is sitting on the plane in the aisle seat in about row 10, Robert Kiyosaki. And I've got this pile of people behind me and I'd never seen, never met the guy before in my life. And I got up to where I was next to him and I stopped and I shook the guy's hand and I said, thank you for everything you do. And he says, what's your name? And we got talking and I said, you, sir, changed my life. And then I went, with everyone yelling at me from behind, I went <laughs> to the back of the plane and sat down. And, of course, he got off and I never saw the guy ever again. But sometimes you get that moment in time to thank your heroes. And I had that moment in January, and I probably, to the day I die, will never forget that. That's cool. Rich Dad, Poor Dad. Read it. Yep. It's, a, it's an excellent starting point. Uh, so, Seth, tell me what happened this week in history. All right, Mark. Well, I wanted to let you and all of the fine folks in the Element Opie Empire know that on February the 22nd, 1999, the first internet-only bank opens. So making its second appearance on this segment, the state of Indiana makes history again. The first internet bank of Indiana opens, becoming the first full-service bank accessible only through the internet. The bank was founded in 1997 by entrepreneur David B. Becker, incorporated on October the 28th, 1998, and opened to the public February 22nd, 1999. And it's engaged in primarily retail banking type stuff, and it has developed and maintained a strong reputation for outstanding personal service via telephone, and that's what keeps it attracting new customers. And Mark, think about that. 1999, the first internet-only bank opened, and now... Back to you. Yeah, 1999, 20 years ago. Uh, it doesn't seem like, that seems too late, uh, too early, 1999 for internet banking. It, that seems like they were, I mean, well, they were the first, right? They were certainly right. early bird. Uh, most people today still don't do an internet-only bank. Um, pretty impressive. Are they still, are they still active? Are they still Yes, operate? yes. Oh. Uh, as of their Wikipedia page says they're still active who has time to go to their actual website. But uh, (laughs) one of my banks is internet only. So, and you get, I get a much higher savings rate there than I do through my credit. So, and you know, Prince was saying that was going to be the end of time. So very good on them to take a risk. Party like it's 1999. Yeah. 
Cool stuff. Um, I, I hope you've enjoyed this segment, uh, this financial February. Uh, it has been uh, a departure from the last couple of years, uh, but I hope it's been worthwhile. And let us know if you want to do it again. Uh, but now, Seth, before I tell people how they can contact us, what do you have to show the, close the show in style this week? Okay, well, first of all, uh, we're going to use some listener feedback next week for our This Week in History. Got some eye-popping stats I've rounded up today. But this is a website I came across online, bigmamaspizza.com. I believe they're somewhere in the New York area. So if you go to their website and scroll down till you find the giant Sicilian, and just look at that and drool. That's just I just wanted people to see that. I mean, it looks a little pricey, but dude, it looks awesome. So a whopping fifty-four inch by fifty-four inch, which equates to almost three thousand square inches of pizza. Two hundred square slices serves fifty to seventy people. It's only three hundred bucks. Yeah, introducing the giant Sicilian at BigMama'sPizza.com. If you go there, tell them Elma Opie sent you. So it's oh my god! You know they're in Los Angeles. Oh, is it Los Angeles? Okay, yeah. yeah I'm it's there. been a, it's been a few days since I've looked at them. So the base price is three hundred dollars. Each additional topping twenty dollars. Extra cheese thirty five dollars. So and the base is just sauce and cheese, right? So if you want pepperoni, you're looking at three hundred and twenty. If you want pepperoni and sausage three forty. You want extra cheese on that three hundred and seventy five dollars. Um, it better feed four a lot of people. Four and a half feet by four and a half feet. <laughs> Road trip. Twenty four <laughs> hours advance notice required, and no, they don't deliver. Carnivore night, right there, baby. <laughs> that would be awesome. Oh, good stuff, Seth. Uh, so now this is how you can tell us what you think about the show. If you're Jenda and you're in the chat room right now, you can type "It was fun, thanks," and that's an immediate feedback. That was awesome. Thanks, Jenda. Uh, you can do that by going to elmanopi.com long about uh, somewhere around the time of 7.30 Eastern time um, on Sunday evenings. And uh, and you can be right here in the chat room and hang out with us, and that would be great. Uh, if you don't want to do that, you could do um, – oh, yeah. That, he asked, what oven do you, do you cook that pizza in? That clearly has to be a specially made oven. Wow. That's why it's three hundred dollars. Uh, yeah. <laughs> so anyway, you can uh, you can also go to elementopi.com, click the contact us button at the top of the page, answer the world's hardest captcha, fill out the form there. That sends something. It will go to my inbox and it will get priority there. I will read your stuff before I read the uh, spam from H and R Block about how I should be doing my taxes right now. Um, you get priority. Uh, or you can dial 559-IAM-OP and leave us a voicemail, and we'll play it there. Or you can send an email to geekrant at elementopi.com. See, options. I'm all about options. you got three different ways you can contact us. Um, or four, if you count the chat room. So let us know what you think. Uh, ideas, other theme months. Uh, financial February was just nice alliteration. Maybe we could do a, a money march. No, that would be that would be too much. Uh, a machinima march. I, I don't know. What? We'll figure out if you've got uh, if you've got some nice um, alliterative theme months suggestions. Let us know at elementop.com. Um, thanks for hanging out with us, uh, Miles. Any final words to wrap up not only this show but Financial February 2019? No, but I got to go and host the Oscars. Oh, okay. <laughs> save now, save often. <laughs> All right. Thanks for hanging out with us. That's it for this episode of the Geek Grant. And remember, pay for what you like.